0: or connect with us on Instagram and Twitter, both underscore MOV number two L-I-V. We're excited to bring you these interviews, and we think you'll enjoy each and every one that we bring you. Welcome back to another Moving to Live podcast, we try to break down the knowledge silos, interview people across the movement field, both for movement professionals and amateur aficionados. We do have the ethos that movement is a lifestyle, not just an activity. Sometimes the guests that I wanna have on take a while, or sometimes I'm out for a walk or a run with my dogs and realize, you know, this is somebody I know, why haven't I asked them before? This is one of those people, I don't know how many years I've known him, probably through email actually met him a little bit over a year ago in person. Uh, Big fan of my Labradors. And I think he's got an interesting background because his claim to fame or one of his claims to fame, for those of you who are academic nerds or, or meatheads, is the fact that he's one of the few people with a master's degree and not a doctorate who is a fellow of the American College of Sports Medicine. I think there's only two or three. We'll probably talk about that. But he's a a runner, a native New Yorker, and we are here with Paul Serace. Paul, thanks for taking time to talk to Moving to Live.
1: Thank you, Ben. Pleasure to be here.
0: My favorite uh, first question that I always ask on Moving to Live, it's kind of like the elevator spiel. You're there, you're standing in an elevator, the elevator happens to get trapped, and somebody says, so what do you do? What's your little spiel or what's your your comment when people ask you what you do? What's your response?
1: Well, I always like to say that I'm a clinical exercise physiologist, but I've become uh, used to the fact that now I just say I have a master's in gym, and then all of a sudden they get it. So they're like, oh, so you're like a physical therapist? I'm like, yes, but no. But no, I'm a clinical exercise physiologist, and when I break it down, when I'm actually out on a date, you know, uh, non-COVID. Um, and she wants to know about what I do for a living and what my profession is, I say that I am similar to a physical therapist in a sense. It's just that the populations that we treat are different. You know, you go to a physical therapist because you tore your rotator cuff or you had ACL surgery. You come to me because you have a systemic disease, so you have hypertension, open-heart surgery, you have type 2 diabetes, obesity, asthma, and I treat the body systems in conjunction with medications that you're on in order to get you to be, you know, feeling better and doing well and increasing your wellness and, and, and your fitness. So um, again, I have a uh, bachelor's degree in biology. My master's is in exercise physiology. That's certified with ACSM and SCA. And they wrote me into all their committees and I did all that jazz for a number of years, which I still do. And uh, so I guess, I'm rambling and what I really should just say is I'm, I'm an exercise guy.
0: And I know I want to come back in a few minutes after we cover a little background and talk a little bit about why if somebody has these systemic diseases, seeking out a clinical exercise physiologist might be better than just a, no insult intended, but a plain old personal trainer or somebody who works in a fitness facility. Because I think educating is important, but you mentioned undergraduate degree in biology. So I I guess the the first question that one has to ask is growing up, were you an active kid? I know you're a runner. Uh, You like to stay active. Were you an active Uh, kid or was that something you found later in life?
1: I was always active as a kid. I definitely was, but I was always the last kid picked for the pickup game of tackle football or stickball or basketball. My eye hand coordination was terrible but I love the training aspect of it. And so when I got into high school, I started lifting weights. I just went into the gym after school and I lifted weights and I got pretty uh, muscular, pretty strong. And then, like I said, I was pursuing my undergraduate degree in biology and, you know, I was in my early twenties. I was still trying to find my way in life and not sure what exactly what I wanted to do. Um, but that's when I got my first, uh, job as a personal trainer at a fitness facility in my hometown and uh i fell in love with it right away and i was just like can i do this as a career but i was like i don't know if i could see myself doing 35 to 40 one-on-one hour sessions as a personal trainer because the burnout rate is extremely high as it's well documented so then i started looking into well, what else can i do and that's when i started considering physical therapy and maybe go for an atc and then ultimately i i gravitated towards exercise physiology. And uh, that's uh, pretty much the, the rundown of my career up to this point.
0: I think it's a, a great time to, to, to mention or, or to provide clarification because I know some of the people who listen to this podcast are either parents of college students or college students. And I think, you know, uh, as well as me, you know, the, the names of the various degrees for our field exercise physiology, depending on the school you're at, sports medicine, kinesiology, some schools that may be physical education with a concentration, et cetera, et cetera. And you mentioned it at the top of the podcast, you are a clinical exercise physiologist. So I think you gave a great explanation of how you transition from the biology degree to going and get it, getting a master's. But how does a, uh, a, a what is a clinical exercise physiology physiologist versus somebody who's just an exercise physiologist, or somebody who says, "Hey, I've got a master's in exercise physiology"? Because I know you've done quite a bit of writing, which we'll touch on. But you know what what differentiates it where you can you can say and actually be correct and not just uh, blowing smoke. You know, I'm a clinical exercise physiologist.
1: I think I think the biggest differentiation is that the clinical EP um, he or she has the knowledge, skills, and abilities to work with the disease population. You know they're on a number of medications. They have these comorbidities, and so they they need to exercise. But you need to um, understand what medications they're on, what their disabilities, their chronic diseases are, and how that works as opposed to an exercise physiologist, or I guess in the industry it's called an applied exercise physiologist versus a clinical exercise physiologist. They're just someone who understands, obviously, the physiology that goes on with exercise, but they don't have a deeper understanding that the clinical EP does in terms of dealing with someone, say, has a metabolic syndrome or has Parkinson's disease or multiple sclerosis. And so um, I think the, the clinical exercise physiologist is the person who is probably... Uh, better prepared to work with someone who has, again, some type of chronic disease or disabilities um, who need attention with their exercise programming related to their disease. And like I said, medications that they may be taking and how that may affect the exercise response.
0: And is that somebody for somebody who's listening to this maybe thinking because of COVID I'm going to do a career change or you know they're they're still in college is that something the clinical exercise physiologist is that a, is that a specialty that you can get when you get your master's degree I know you also have some certifications I know ACSM has a, a very credible one in that I know that NSCA has a special populations certification that that looks at uh, Exercising, exercise for people with chronic diseases. But, you know, how did you fall into, you know, this is clinical. How did you get the expertise?
1: Um, well, actually, my master's degree, my graduate degree, is in applied exercise physiology. But then I went on to take – actually, I took the pilot exam in 2000 in Indianapolis, uh, the registered clinical exercise physiologist with ACSM, which is now certified exercise physiologist. We've changed the terminology. Um, but, uh, whatever the exam is the same. Um, it was crazy. I took the first exam and the pilot exam, and I went into this room in the Marriott in downtown Indianapolis, and there's like 20 people in the room. And I was expecting to walk in there and like hundreds are going to be out because this is like the first exam that's specific for clinical EPs. And it's like 20 people in the room. And Tom LaFontaine is sitting next to me and he's my mentor. He's the he's the founder of the Special Populations column for SCJ. And he's sitting there and he's looking at me and I'm looking at him. And we're doing like one of these, like, like where is everybody? Um, but uh, I would say that that's where my training came from because then I got my first job at Hackensack Medical Center in the asthma and allergy center, which is uh, kind of unique. People are like, "Oh, you're an exercise physiologist working in an asthma center." And I'm like, "Yeah, there's people have exercise induced asthma, and they have exercise induced anaphylaxis, which is pretty scary." And so, I did testing and training for those people, and then I went to phase two cardiac rehab, where I was for the last twelve years until I left two years ago. So, I would say my the basis of my training as a clinical professional. Really does come from ACSM. I love NSCA. I'm totally committed to the organization. But the specific skill sets that I have for working with disease populations, I believe, comes from my ACSM training. Uh, you know, the certification, obviously, continuing education with the journals and so forth, and attending conferences and so forth.
0: And for somebody who's listening to this, I mean, you know, I I know when I was say 22, 23. You know, I I went the athletic training route, but the idea of dealing with people with chronic diseases, like, no, 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 I want to deal with athletes. And now that I'm a little bit older, I do a little personal training on the side, you know, having had the opportunity to work with somebody who unfortunately passed on from cancer, working for a number of years with a lady with rheumatoid arthritis. You know, these are some of the most rewarding people to work with. You know, even more rewarding than training that runner to break three hours in the marathon, or or training you know somebody just to fi- finish their first century bike ride, because I can still remember with the with the lady with rheumatoid arthritis, you know, she got stronger. We 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 did some resistance training. She went on a a trip to New Zealand with her husband, and I just suggested, just as a flyer, you know, you might be able to walk a little bit more than you normally do with your husband if you took a pair of hiking poles. Little did I know when I get a text message from her on a, on a, in a field on a cliff overlooking the ocean that she decided that she was going to go out and hike 10 K, you know, and the fact that she could do this, she's like, I couldn't have done this without you. It's like, no, I gave you the tools to do it. You did the work. So I I think one of the things that people miss when they listen to somebody like you or me, I'm a little bit older than you. is like, well, yeah, he's a clinical exercise physiology. That's nice, but I want to work with athletes. But I think, uh, one of the things that people are missing when they think about clinical exercise physiology is the opportunity you have to literally change people's lives because many of people with chronic diseases, you know, 20 years ago, 20, 20 years ago, as you said, that was the infancy 25 years ago, you know, you had, uh, you know, cardiac rehab was around, but many of the other chronic diseases like, well, you know, you have this disease, you shouldn't exercise, don't exercise. And now they're like, yes, you should exercise. But you need to exercise responsibly.
1: Right. You know, and it's funny that you mentioned that, Ben. um, There were so many people who would come into cardiac rehab, men and women alike, who had open heart surgery, although it's not open heart technically, but they call it open heart surgery. And they think their lives are over. It's it. That's it. They're done. They have nothing left to give. And then all of a sudden, we start getting them on the treadmill, and we're on the recumbent bike, and they're on the new step. And especially with the men, we start moving the iron a little bit again. And you know what? It's okay to still lift weights. You can lift more than a gallon of milk in terms of weight. And all of a sudden, they feel like you know they, they are still alive, and they still have a lot to live for. And, and so that's probably probably the most rewarding component of what I do is when someone comes in and they had some type of event, they had an MI, they went into cardiac arrest. Um, they needed CPR, which I had to do one, John, in mean, a Queens 10K, but we'll, we can talk about that later. Very stressful experience. Um, but just to, to be able to help people to just get back to some type of normalcy in their life, and like you said, you and Lisa always say, movement. Um, that's probably the most rewarding part of what I do.
0: And, and I'm curious with this along the same realm because I know you you are active with the National Strength and Conditioning Association and ACSM. It seems every other health fitness uh, journal I pick up, you're author or co-author. Um, Appreciate that. Ben. You know, ma- many, many, many people. I mean, one of the things that I've always told my students and said to people, it's like, you know, you you pay for these certifications, and you can read on so- social media. You know, I can't believe I'm paying this money, or I gave up the certification because of it, because of the organization. You know, they're 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 not doing anything for me, and I know that. You have the certifications. It's fairly easy, but yet you continue to give back both to ACSM and the NSCA through writing and through through service. Talk about that. Why when so many people, and I mean, I, obviously the, many of the people we associate with do as much or more than either you have, or I do yeah. or ever will do, but there's also a huge number of people you know, who just, they pay their whatever $100 a year or they maintain their CEUs and do anything else. Why the contribution and the, you know, emailing me and say, hey, if you've got an article that you need reviewed, I'm your man, I can do this. You know, why do that rather than just sit back and say, okay, I paid my $120 or $135 to the NSCA and whatever it is to ACSM, and I've got my certification.
1: You know, that's a very interesting question, Ben. Um, I guess because I'm not uh, complacent. You know, I I still feel that, you know, at the ripe old age of 48, um, the hair is thinning. Um, I still have a role in, in, in the industry and maybe that's part ego. And if that's the case, I accept that. But there's, if there's, there's something that I could contribute to people who are following in my footsteps, so to speak, then that's something that, you know, encourages me, motivates me. Cause I was there once. I remember when I started subscribing to, um, uh, NSCA Strength and Conditioning Journal, uh, years and years ago, cheese and crackers. I remember I was reading it. It was – I was in the airport in Nashville, Tennessee, and I was coming back from ACSM's national convention. This has got to be going back 15 years easily. And I'm looking at the articles and this, that, and the other thing, and I'm recognizing names and so forth, and I'm I'm looking at the, the masthead. And I'm like – I said to myself, like, wouldn't it be the greatest thing in the world the coolest thing for me as silly as it sounds to have my name listed on the masthead of nsca's scj and now it's there and it's in every issue now i'm like yeah there it is whatever whatever but um i guess my motive again my motivation is to continue education because we're constantly learning something new and we're learning something new about COVID practically daily and uh and everything else, you know, from resistance training to aerobic training to working with special disease populations, I just feel like there's, there's still a place for me um, to, to contribute to, to the profession, which I'm very, very passionate about. I'm not getting rich by it, but it is keep my head above water.
0: And and I think you hit on, on a couple of things there that I think are very important for, to emphasize. And I think people who maintain active memberships and get their names on the mastheads or get their names on committee listings, uh, you know, very often for little or no pay, except for maybe a meal or so, or so here or there. <laughs> but at the end of the yeah, day, picked up a tab in D.C. <laughs> for me, you, and Lisa. <laughs> but, but you know, at the at the at the end at the end of the day. If you're in the movement field, part of what or a significant part of what you do is you teach. I mean, it may not be going into a classroom, but you writing an article and talking about, you know, these are some things to look at for COVID, for return to exercise in COVID. Or, you know, if, you, if you're working with a client one-on-one, that's teaching because, you know, you may say, well, I'm just spotting them or I'm just taking them through, through a, a cardiac rehab workout. Right but those same things you know if if you're working with somebody and they come back to you and say oh you know I was uh doing this in the yard and I was thinking of you you were in the back of my head and you were saying I heard Paul say you know when you lift make sure you do this and it's like and I did that and that, that's actually something that I think many people say well you know I I I've got to do whatever it is I have to do for, in the movement field they don't realize that at the end of the day the most important thing they can do and pass on is teach Agreed Along the along those lines, to kind of build that out is one of the things that I think is so unique about both the American College of Sports Medicine and to a lesser extent the NSCA because it's it's a newer and it's smaller is the wide variety of professionals who join those organizations. I mean, I know one of the interesting things you mentioned that you uh, you know you recognize names on the masthead when you were looking at the National Strength and Conditioning Association Strength and Conditioning Journal. Probably very similarly with ACSM, you you recognize these names of people. And there are people literally breaking down knowledge silos because I know in ACSM you just co-authored a, a, an article with a physician who's very well known in, in the running world. Yes, what, good man. What, what was the what was the uh, impetus, or why was it uh, because you know, ACSM has a reputation for being. Clinical. You know, if you're interested in the clinical aspects of exercise, you do ACSM. You know, if you're interested more in the performance aspects, you do the NSCA. And, you know, there are a large number of people who cross over, but there's also a large number of people who are members of both organizations who kind of look at the other organizations like, well, I see why that's important, but that's not me. Other than the ego trip and I'm being, I'm joking here and being sarcastic, the ego <laughs> trick of working to be on the masthead of, uh, of a journal at the NSCA, What was the impetus as a clinical exercise physiologist to say, hey I'm gonna jump over a little bit, maybe a little bit out of my comfort zone although as a runner, some of it might also have been hey, you know what can I learn that might help me run a little bit faster time?
1: Well, you, you know, Ben, it's it's interesting. The article, the column, medical report column, that's in the current uh, issue of uh, FIT, ACSM FIT, as it's called, uh, was me along with uh, Dr. J, as he's called, a good time, long-time friend of mine, and then Tom Mahati, who I um, worked with for a lot, a lot of years, and then it was Dr. Roberts, who was one of the reviewers, And he came back and he had a few minor comments and he asked if his name could be put on the on on on, as one of the co-authors. And we found that totally flattering. And so it was just really um, it was really a good feeling. But with the NSCA, again, it goes back to when I talk to so many of my interns, and they talk about, oh, well, NSCA, that's in when you work with athletes, and that's strength and conditioning, and that's powerlifting, and that's Olympic lifting. I'm like, no, you also can be an NSCA certified personal trainer, which focuses on working with clients who have medically controlled chronic diseases and disabilities. And I just feel like that's and Jeff Jeff Chandler told me this uh, not too long ago he said it it probably will never be the biggest part of the NSCA organization but it will always be an important part and we need to have that we need to have education as you were mentioning where it comes from publications presentations on okay so someone has this type of condition here and here's the are the do's and the don'ts and the recommendations based on what the national guidelines tell us so i i I'm, I feel good about my role in, in the sense that it's unique or the minority with NSCA, but, um, but I feel I still have a role there and it just, um, it's, that's, you know, it's my stick.
0: And I think one of the things that I found that I, I could speak because I've been much more active in the NSCA yeah, is there's always the opportunity if you're interested in something. Somebody's not going to say, "Oh, we're going to do that," especially you mentioned Jeff Chandler, the longtime editor of the Strength and Conditioning Journal. Jeff is probably much better known for saying, "Well, why don't you do that?" or "Why don't you try writing I I, I know for example in in the early 2000s there was an endurance activities column because I was big into triathlons and I said, "You know, there needs to be an endurance column." And, Rather than doing it, Jeff said, well, why don't you recruit some authors and take it through the peer review process? And we'll do that. And I think there's the opportunity. Um, and, I, and I think uh, by, by you telling your interns that you've had that, you know, no, it's not just uh, go in the gym, get stronger. There's the opportunity to create your own path and basically expand your knowledge base outside of, okay, I'm a clinical exercise physiologist, or I'm a a a, a meathead. And I I don't mean that in a negative way. I remember talking to a longtime strength coach who transitioned out of the strength coach still in the field. Um, I think that's a theme. Many of us go through multiple careers in the field or multiple specialties. As you mentioned, you'd left the clinical physiology aspect. And one of the things that I was amazed is he goes, you know, I'm too big. I'm never going to run a marathon. He says, it's just, it doesn't make sense for my body, but he did a hundred mile mountain bike race because he said, you know, if I'm going to be working with clients, who want to run a marathon or want to do a triathlon or want to do something like that. I need to know what they feel like. He said, I'm never going to be as fast as them, but I need to know what it's like to actually train. And you know, if I'm going to write a program, I need to understand what it is. And you were mentioning your coach who took you through a three hour uh, or sub three hour marathon, who I think you said, maybe had never broken four and a half or five hours. And I think that's an important thing that very often is missing in the fitness field. It's like, Oh, well, you don't look like a runner, so you can't be a good coach, or you don't have a six pack on your abs. So, you know, I don't want to come to you to lose weight. And you really miss out as we were chatting before we started recording, you know, one of the reasons for moving to live is to give education to realize that just because you have 50,000 followers and look good with your shirt off, doesn't necessarily mean you're the best person for training, training somebody because a, you may not have the basic knowledge and B to come into this. You may have an ego so big, or you may not that you're not going to recognize somebody else who knows more than you. And I'm going to kind of give you the opportunity to, toot your own horn a little bit because I know I follow you on social media and a couple of your running friends, and one of them mentioned a friend who had had a weird symptom during a run that turned out to be a specific type of stroke that was very unusual. And you know, I'm just kind of reading through it, and then you popped in and what, you know, you were popping out the statistics and things like that. And I think the take-home message from that is you always need to have your circle or cadre of people who. Are outside your area of expertise because then you're gonna look really smart to your clients because you're gonna be able to get the answer for them and you're gonna learn yourself. So I think when you hit the, on the fact that it's like, you know, I was a, a clinical guy, but I, I saw the opportunity with, with the NSCA, I think the most valuable thing with education. And with being in this field is to expand your network, not necessarily the beer drinking buddies or ladies that you go out with at the conferences, but the people that if you don't know, you can call them up and say, Hey, you know, Ben, I don't know shit about this. You tell me, tell me what you know, and I'm not going to go, Oh man, Paul, how do you not know that you're an idiot? How does, how did you get into that? Or was that something that you just naturally, it was easy for you to call people and say, Hey, can you tell me about this? Or can you give me the opportunity to help out on this?
1: I've always believed that the best thing that you can do uh, certainly with your career is surround yourself with people who are more knowledgeable than you are. And I've always tried to do that. And I think I've done that with some success, a modicum of success, but uh, I think it's just a matter of talking with people and networking with people and establishing relationships with people who work in your profession and maybe have specialties that you don't have. Listen, nobody's an expert on everything. You know, no one's an expert jack of all trades. We all have our specialties on what we're confident in and what we have a lot of knowledge and experience in. But then there's other areas. I'm not an ATC like you are, Ben. So when it comes to something like physical therapy or rehabbing from some type of an ACL injury or an MCL injury or whatever, uh, I'm going to trust you more than I'm going to trust myself. And it's just a matter of, it not having it's not it's a matter of not having an ego and just you know networking with people and surrounding yourself with people who are as knowledgeable as you are or in many cases in my case more knowledgeable than I am and then it just elevates you to the next level and so it really it just comes down to a matter of that in my opinion.
0: I think that's well put. I know that I came across a personal trainer's website fairly recently. I won't say the city they're in, et cetera. I won't say the name, but apparently this individual was an expert in dealing with postpartum, dealing with uh, powerlifting, dealing with uh, high school athletes, dealing with elderly, dealing with people who have cancer, dealing with uh, endurance athletes. And I'm thinking, wow, this is really somebody who really is an expert in so many fields. And I'm being somewhat facetious with that because I think a a good personal trainer can work with all of those things. But at the end of the day, those people I think who are really good are those who can say, you know, I can work with this realm of people. These are the people that I'm best working with. I I'm, Uh, I brought this up before in other podcasts, I've had a number of of retinal surgeries because of a a congenital problem with my eye. And I remember having a, having to have a procedure done in the uh, retinal specialist office and him saying, you know, let me see if my colleagues here, because I can do this, but my colleague is way better at this. And I remember just thinking, it's like, wow, you know, I'm just, I'm not at all nervous, even though they were sticking a needle in my eye, because here's a guy who says, look, you know, I can do this, but let's see if somebody else is. So I, one of the things that people are going to say, if somebody asks you, Paul, you know, if, what is the type of person that if they say, you know, what is the type of person that you have the best results with that you feel most comfortable dealing with? You know, is it somebody who has, who has a chronic disease? Is it somebody who's an up and coming runner? Is it somebody who just wants to improve quality of life?
1: That's a good question, Ben. I would, I would have to say dealing with someone where some type of comorbidity or comorbidities going on. They come in, they have hypertension, they have metabolic syndrome, they have, they're obese, uh, they have osteoarthritis, they have rheumatoid arthritis, they have Parkinson's disease, because these are people that I have dealt with through the years and have, again, used my knowledge, skills, and abilities to design their program so that it's safe and effective for them. And it's really not that much different from – a as I say, and I always quote, apparently healthy individual. Um, but there are some considerations that you need to uh, recognize and adapt their program to. Um, but I am comfortable working with someone who wants to build muscle. As you said, the meathead, if they want to come to me, if they think I can do it, I know how to recognize, you know, the acute variables to maximize muscle hypertrophy. Um, but I would say the disease population is probably where, um, is my forte.
0: And I know you mentioned that you sometimes work with interns. If you're talking to a group of interns and they, you know, they're getting their undergraduate degrees in, in exercise physiology, maybe they're not getting a master's immediately. You know, they they may wait a year. We all know some people don't get master's degrees, which is fine. Some people are blooming idiots and go on and, and, and get a doctorate degree like me for some forsaken reason. And I say that my reason was I wanted to play for another four years. I'm totally joking with that. But you know, if you had to say that, you know, looking at the interns that you've had and knowing knowing what you know about education that people get in undergrad, somebody says, you know, Paul, I'm graduating, you know, and you know it's a strong program. What what are the one or two areas that you might say, you know, if these two areas of really focusing on maybe taking a weekend seminar or, or, or going to a conference that specializes in these areas, what are the areas that you frequently see with interns that they could use a little bit more knowledge that they're not getting?
1: Yeah, yeah, that, that, that's a tough one, Ben. I'm going to be completely honest with you. Um, the majority of the interns I've worked with go on to become physical therapists, uh, physician assistants, or they even go to uh, medical school. And They say because there's not many opportunities for a clinical exercise physiologist, they don't make great money. When I worked at Hackensack University Medical Center, this is the biggest hospital in the state of New Jersey. It employed 10,000 employees, full and part-time. That's how many exercise physiologists they employed.
0: Paul's holding up two fingers.
1: Yes, yes, thank you. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Two fingers, not the middle finger. And, um, and so that's what turns a lot of the interns off and the undergrads off. They're like, there's no money to be made. You know, I see what the pay scale is for an EP or a clinical exercise physiologist versus a physical therapist or a physician assistant or an advanced nurse practitioner. And so I'm going where the money is and I'm, and there's more growth and there's more opportunity there. So it's a difficult question for, for me to answer, Ben, I'm actually one of the I think as far as I know, I'm one of the few still hanging around, you know, without teaching at a university who's still a clinical practicing, clinical exercise physiologist. Um, I don't know what the future holds as far as opportunities for exercise physiologists. I mean, you know, sometimes some people can say "Oh, an exercise physiologist is a glorified personal trainer. Um, not really. You know, I've seen some of the certification exams out there. One of them who I won't mention, as you mentioned before, I looked at their sample 10 question, uh, multiple choice. And one of them was true or false. Do you work the biceps muscle during a bicep curl? True or false? I mean, I mean, really. So to become a personal trainer and be certified. I mean, it's 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 not that difficult to be, but whether, it, are you a good one or are you are knowledgeable one or you're not. So I don't know if I have an answer for, if you had on Ben, because you know, I'm actually a little bit discouraged with the future of the profession. I mean, there's the, um, Oh, what is it? Uh, the CEPA uh, is, is trying to advance and get licensure for, um, for clinical exercise physiologists, which is only, legal right now or legit in louisiana but it's not even an exam you fill out an application and you become a licensed clinical exercise physiologist. where's the exam there is no exam they're trying to create one in massachusetts um it's been going on and on for years and there doesn't to be any progress so i don't know if i have an answer for you ben i mean it's just uh it, it's a laudable profession but um the opportunities to be a clinical EP, they, they, they are limited. They really are. And there's no way for me to sugarcoat it.
0: And I, and I think that's well put. I think it's something, if you think about uh, chronic diseases, I mean, obviously some of them, you know, you, you can't, you can't pick your genetics, but we know that many of the chronic diseases are related to a lack of exercise or a lack of correct exercise And I, and I think, uh, just across the movement field, whatever you want to call it somewhere, somehow the boat has been missed on putting a priority on regular movement. I think the statistic I saw is there's something like 27% of Americans do no regular movement at all time at all. And you're probably better up on, on the statistic for this than me, but I, I I suspect, uh, you know, chronic obesity just as as, as one, uh, Morbidity is probably at least fifty percent in the United States.
1: Um, I don't know if it's quite that high. I o- overweight is definitely in the realm of uh, two thirds. Uh, I think the last I saw, don't quote me on this. I can look it up. I think roughly thirty-five to forty percent are extremely obese. We no longer use morbid obesity; now it's extreme obesity. Um, but uh, about two-thirds are overweight. And there's no question that lifestyle factors into that. It, it's, you know, going to McDonald's too often, you know, not going out for the walk with Maggie and Pudding, you know, and just staying home and putting your feet up and, and putting the TV on and listening to the news and this, that, and the other thing. And there's no, no doubt that lifestyle factors in. Of course it does. And uh, it's, it's something that we just need to continue to, uh, to champion. To uh, to the American public and to the world or world public for that matter.
0: We're talking with Paul Serace. Got one final question for you, Paul. Since I know you just recently authored an article on this. Uh, hypothetically speaking, you're you're uh, we get a vaccine for COVID. Things return to and I'm using air quotes normal, where you see people one on one and you're actually able to work with them other than Zoom or you you see them, them comfortably, you know. What are the one or two things that somebody should be concerned about who's in this field, who has a, uh, an athlete or a, uh, a client who comes to them and says, yeah, you know, I was, I was diagnosed with COVID. The doctor cleared me. I'm good to go. What are the kind of like the red flags that if you're working with one of these people saying, okay, I want to make sure of this, not only to cover my butt, but also to make sure that we don't have any long-term problems?
1: Well, really, the only thing we can go on right now is what we know. Wear a mask, wash hands frequently. Uh, social distance, um, and just uh, just go with those three. Those are really the only three, and that's discussed in the manuscript that was published in ACSM's Fit Journal. Uh, that's really all we have right now until a vaccine has been, you know, validated and is legit. It's a matter of the masking works. Social distancing works. Washing hands works. Don't touch your nose. Don't touch your eyes. It's not a respiratory disease because the last time I checked, we don't breathe through our eyes so we can get in through the eyes um, and just uh, practice those safe hygiene, um, you know, acts. And that's really what I would focus on and what I am focusing on with my clients that I'm working with right now.
0: And it's kind of like, people don't want to necessarily hear that because it's not cool and sexy and neat. It's just kind of yeah. not really common sense, but it's just kind of, you know, do these, do these things. And it's uh well, but, but there's gotta be something more. It's like not until we have more research that shows that. That's correct.
1: And that's why we even mentioned in our column in ACSM's journal that this is what we know right now. And there's going to be ongoing research and data. And by time this article was published which it was it might be slightly outdated based on what we've learned since then but when we wrote it at the time this is what we know right now and uh from what i'm reading and from what i'm hearing it still has um you know merit so i'm kind of happy about it
0: we've been talking to paul serates he is a clinical exercise physiologist i think he's given us some good information across the board about uh the importance of movement as a lifestyle and just uh, his path as a clinical exercise physiologist. Paul, I want to thank you for taking time to talk to Moving to Live. It was an absolute pleasure. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of Moving to Live. Make sure you check out the show notes for contact information for our latest guest, as well as links about all the things we talked about. Intro and exit music is Traveling Light by Jason Shaw. You can subscribe to Moving to Live on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and Google Play, and be notified about new episode releases. Have any questions, comments, or suggestions? Drop us an email, mov2liv at gmail.com. Connect with us on Twitter or Instagram, both, underscore, mov2liv. Please tell your friends about Moving to Live. It's a go-to place for information for movement and exercise professionals and amateur aficionados who understand that movement is part of what makes your life complete. Until next week, keep on moving.